Hello and welcome to Tonebenders. This is Tim. Before we get to the amazing sound team from Alan Wake 2, I wanted to remind our Los Angeles-based listeners, or anyone that might be headed to town for the Golden Reels or CAS Awards, that Tonebenders is teaming up with Game Audio LA for our second sound design meetup in Los Angeles. It will be on Thursday, February 29th at 7 p.m. at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. We have the covered patio set aside for us to hang out with friends both old and new, talk shop, and share some laughs. All sound people are welcome and encouraged to come out, whether you work in games, film, series, field recording, or anything else. I'm going to be there, and I would love to meet as many of you as possible, so please come by and say hi. Full details can be found at ToneBendersPodcast.com. Okay, I'm going to hand over this episode to Mark Kilborn now to talk with the Alan Wake 2 sound team. Enjoy this episode, everybody. Hello and welcome to Tonebenders, where we talk with the sonic artists behind our favorite films, games, and series. My name is Mark Kilborn, and I'll be your host today as we explore the dark and disturbing world of Alan Wake 2. The game initially follows the story of an FBI agent, Saga Anderson, as she and her partner investigate a series of ritualistic murders in the small town of Bright Falls. But before long, her story becomes intertwined with that of Alan Wake, a crime novelist who disappeared from the town 13 years prior. Today we have... Four guests from the Remedy audio team. The first is Richard Lappington, the audio director at Remedy. Hi. The second is Arthur Tisserant, senior dialogue designer at Remedy. Hello. Third is Annika Neubert, development manager at Remedy. Hi, it's good to be here. And finally, Kit Chalice, senior technical audio designer. Howdy. Thank you all for joining us. As I mentioned before we started talking, I'm a big fan of this game. I love the story. I love the world. I'm really excited to get to play it. But I had a few things I noticed when I was playing it that really stuck out to me. And one of the first ones was the enemy voices. You know, as you're encountering these enemies in the game, unlike most games where they shout reloading or he's over there or whatever, I, I noticed that the enemies are shouting lines from Alan's manuscript, which is really interesting. And it seems like a lot of the intent of the lines is delivered through intonation. What can you tell me about the process of the enemy dialogue in this game? Well, it did like you say, start with the plan of having the enemies speak lines from the manuscript. And I think, I think the same happened on the original. I was not present for that, but that was the same, right? Yeah, at the original, they were speaking lines about, the, if I remember correctly, it's a long time ago now, but about the, where the character was from. So if they were like a lumberjack, they would mm -hmm. be shouting things about being a lumberjack. We changed it a bit. They were speaking things from the perspective of Alan. So they were taken from the narrative of the game and they were shouting these lines from there. Yeah, and that leads to some fun situations where we have people picking up manuscript pages, reading them, and then noticing enemies saying the same thing, which is great. It just kind of ties the whole narrative together. The story is affecting these people. They are basically possessed by it. And like you also said earlier, we did want to communicate what they're doing like a traditional enemy in a game we need to be able to tell players you know this thing is running at you and is trying to slice your head off with an axe but we needed to do that in a way that was consistent with those manuscript pages so we had all the actors deliver their lines at three different energy levels and that was basically ambient where they are existing in the world 
You can hear them, but they don't know you're there. We had alerted, which they know you're there, but they have not actively engaged with you yet. And then engaged, which is there in combat shouting at you. And those three energy levels were used to communicate basically the level of awareness and also the level of intensity that is given to the player. Because when you have enemies saying crazy stuff like top 100 American small towns, it's very different if they're mumbling them just under their breath going, top 100 American small towns. Or if they're screaming them while they're running at you with an axe, top 100 American small towns. <laughs> I think that resulted in a really unique feel where, like you said, it doesn't, it doesn't feel right. And none of this was supposed to feel right. It's supposed to feel, oh, oh no, something is deeply wrong with these people. But they still want to kill you. Yeah. There's another type of enemy in this game that was not present in the original at all, that is only present in the dark place that we call the fade-outs. They are these little shadow people that you will meet very quickly. And those were treated in both the same and a very different way from the Washington State enemies. We wanted to keep them as part of like a cue for the player that there is an enemy here. And as such, they are always talking, but they're speaking in a different way. Their lines don't come from manuscript pages, but they come from the wake insights that you can find on TVs throughout the Dark Place. And those are kind of just videos of Alan losing his mind while he's writing. So they're very much echoes of himself. And we are hearing his words spoken through the shadows, through the fadeouts. They were mixed differently as well. They were put in a place where they attenuated a lot harder, a lot faster. So they were, as you're standing in the darkness of the dark place, just kind of taking it all in, just barely above the noise floor, you can hear there is something there. You understand there are things around you happening, but because both visually and auditorily they fade out quickly, Sometimes you don't realize they're there until they're very close, and then suddenly you will hear their alert bark, because they do use the same state system, but their bark is very different. Their bark is just one word, and it's a lot of variants of it, but you're going to hear the word WAKE a lot. <laughs> and throughout the, the dark place, all these shadows speaking wakes words are going to talk and echo around the buildings and then as you get close they're going to say his name they're going to look at him and they're going to start walking towards him or they're going to stand still because not all of them have substance and not all of them will attack you some of them will just disappear some of them will walk towards you and then disappear when they touch you and some of them will attack you i hesitate to say chorus because they're not meant to be that but the presence of the darkness is always felt through their words as well as all the other incredible ambience work that was done. It kind of lives more with that in the dark place than it does as its own dialogue until they are attacking you, after which they are shouting these lines at you. I'm trying to imagine being there with performers reading these lines. Were the actors confused by the script? Like, what was the reaction? We actually recorded all the bark lines in a week. Um, the entire screenplay is a couple of hundred lines per character type, and there's about 16 different character types in there. And just before we go into like how the actual recordings went, it was putting the putting the barks together. It was it was we used so many uh, actors because unlike like the games we've done previously, a lot of the you know the enemies were either male or a certain age range. 
the age ranges of the the enemies are really really wide. It goes from basically people in their twenties right the way up to their eighties, because one of the scenes is set in an old people's home, and it's male and female. The amount of voices we needed for this to actually cover all the different scenarios that we had. And all the different types of uh, characters we had was a fair amount of, uh, well, ended up being a fair amount of actors. But when we went into the studio, we went in with an idea of what we wanted, but we didn't want everyone to sound the same. So we presented the idea of these different levels of like intensity, but more in the res into the the idea of like when you're like in the lowest intensity level, it, it's not you know, you're not whispering it. We didn't want everyone to whisper. It's more like you're in conflict with yourself. It's your, it's your human side and the dark side of, of you are in conflict. So, and we are letting the actors kind of discover their own voice for that. And then we, we up the ante in each, each one. So started off with this very idea of the actor being confused. And then we go into like being annoyed about the situation. And then the, obviously the, the highest one is like, you're really furious. And allowing the actors to kind of play with these ideas and this idea of internal conflict between the words that they're saying and the situation they're in and just let them basically go free free reign on it um, and that's i think one of the main reasons we have such variety within the enemy voices in themselves uh, some people going in like going a lot like stuttering and breaking up like, you know stop american 100. we had one fantastic actress when she was doing like the really angry one, she was basically sounding like uh, somebody who was singing death metal. She was coming out with this voice, which was so incredibly huge. And she would sound like this death metal scene. It's like, where did this voice come from, from this person? She said, oh yeah, you know, I do this on my spare time. <laughs> you know, it's my hobby. I'm a death metal singer. <laughs> but we, we, we really let the actors themselves um, discover the voices for the enemies, as long as it was within the remit of this kind of conflict of character. It's, yeah, it was a lot of fun doing it, though. A lot, a lot of fun. Can you tell me a bit about once you had the dialogue lines recorded, what the process was to get them sounding as disturbing and creepy and monstrous as they do in the game? The, the sound of the enemies was, and how disturbing they are, partially came from the processing, but also partially from the system that they use. The way that they're driven by the system is to communicate their awareness levels, like I said before, but also they never do not make noise. Anytime they're not speaking a line, they're always mumbling, just making any sort of noise. And that might include snippets of lines that might include them like sounding like they're sucking on their hand or eating something. Like, it, like Richard said, there's a huge variety between actors of what those mumbles sounded like. But those mumbles also had energy levels. So depending on what enemies are doing and how they feel about you, you will always hear them, and most likely you will always hear them before you see them. So even if you're not consciously registering it, because those mumbles can be very quiet, especially if they're far away, you're feeling like, oh, oh, something is wrong here, something is about to happen, and as that escalates, you go, oh, something is here to get me. And I do think that that constant just, the enemies will not let you go, they will not give your ears rest, they are constantly chattering and speaking and doing something helps add to that tension. One of the other things that we did was emphasize light as pain to them. We had, you know, obviously you shoot enemies in this game and they react. They make general pain barks as an enemy would because despite their state, you are still hurting them. But we reserved the highest level of pain, like the, the real yells and the big reactions to you burning their flashlight or hitting them with a flare because that's what really hurts 
them and in their current state, what like their just dissolves their being almost, dissolves the darkness around them. And that's when they really scream. And that also, I think, helps make you feel like you're fighting something that is not quite human, but was was once and could still be under there human. Yeah, and for listeners who haven't played the game, a core part of the combat mechanic of this game is that you shine a light at the enemies to kind of hurt them, weaken them, stun them, so that you can then shoot them with your weapon. Um, it's it's a real core part of the combat of the game. So the the communication of that light damage is really, really critical. Yes, thank you for clarifying. And then, yeah, on top of that is the processing that we did. Um, the enemies of the first game, had a they had a very distinct super ring modulated uh, sound to them, but we wanted to kind of take it in a different direction for this game because this game is very different in a lot of ways. It's almost a, like a different genre, completely different game feel, the atmosphere is different, everything is very different, but it's still the same universe. So taking that super heavily ring modulated sound as an inspiration, that was the base that we started with. Um, a couple of ring modulators that basically just make everything fuzzy and indistinct. And that helps us feel like maybe they're they're shouting at us. They are here, but they're not quite here or they're not quite there themselves. And on top of that, we added multiple layers of pitch shifting that were affected by the amplitude of the sound. So we had one static pitch shifter that I was pitching them, if I'm remembering correctly, was pitching them down two or three semitones. And then we had two dynamic ones that started at a fairly high and fairly low pitch and then reversed themselves as the amplitude got higher. So that helped us, you know, pitch and playing with it really helps make things feel different. But if it's not done in a way that keeps things moving, it can feel very... Uh, I'm going to have trouble explaining this without just doing it, but like it can feel very big and weird and a little bit dumb and we wanted to avoid that so having that movement in there lets us go like oh maybe to some people it feels like they're speaking with many voices to some it feels like they're speaking with one voice that's in constant conflict with itself but that i think was the biggest thing that helped and then beyond that the ring mod and the pitch shifting very little else was done in terms of effects it was mostly just saturation and eq and compression to really bring things over you know, and, and to, to make them a little more present and feel louder than they are because they are supposed to announce their presence. So the game is really dialogue heavy, but it's also spread a lot of, across a lot of different mediums within the medium of a game. You know, there's gameplay, there's in-game cinematics, there's live action video. I don't want to give away too much, but there are TV episodes on televisions within the game. There are interesting segments where main characters get caught up in some of these television shows. There's video overlays. You know, there's a lot of different mediums of sound that were put together to make this game. How do you ensure that all those different pieces fit together? Because this game is more than just sound designing a game, right? Yes, that is true. This game is a bit of an epic, really, when it comes to sound design or just pure logistics of getting all the sound together. I think it really breaks down to where the core direction of the game, right from the beginning, you could look at the, the scope of the game and how it was laid out, because um, we also have like different worlds. We have the Dark Place and Washington State. We have the Mind Place and we have the, the Writer's Room. And you kind of start 
looking at the game in buckets or boxes of aesthetics. And you can do the same, like we have live action, we have different types of live action, we have blended videos which play within the game world. We have the TVs that play in-game as like diegetic TVs within the game. And then we have like live action, which is more like a traditional cinematic, like a rendered cinematic. And then we have rendered cinematics as well. Yeah, it, it just spans a whole plethora of different things which you need to do with it with sound. The way we approach this was basically segmenting everything down. So we put everything into a kind of box. And it's actually the way we approach the mix as well. So that, and how to structure the WISE project is everything's kind of segmented into different areas. So if we look specifically about the live action sequences, there are some live action sequences which are meant to sound and be transitioned directly like from gameplay into the live action. It's supposed to be kind of seamless. And there's some that we designed specifically to, to sound very, very different to the game itself on purpose because of it's like a narrative tool. And the ones which are supposed to be like sound like the game, we, we use the game assets directly. We, we just took the ambiences from from the game and then replaced them into the live action sequence. Um, we made sure we rendered it on the, on the output bus at the same number of channels. So our base, base rendering is actually 7.1.4. So all of the whole game is running 7.1.4 as a mix. And then we made sure it transitions correctly. We took the cinematic as, it, as the main like musical direction and then composed the music from beginning, like leading into the cinematic and then leading out the cinematic to make sure it seamlessly transitioned. On the flip side of that, in, for instance, the, the talk show that you we were mentioning, that's rendered in stereo and it's meant to contrast the game sound uh, completely. And this goes even further than that, that we, would, we, we divided the team up into a way that we kind of segmented the team so a different team would do the tv shows to to doing the cinematics for like the in-game rendered and you could say a different team was doing the dark place to doing the washington state uh, with the in express intention of trying to create this contrast between the the, the the worlds so looking at the design and the aesthetic of the game like i was saying they're kind of like these boxes and each box had its own kind of aesthetic value so for instance for the washington state we're using very very specific keywords when when I was talking to the sound designers, what that should be, these keywords were coming up a lot, and it's like epic and natural and uh, beautiful environments and you know, quirky. And then if you look at the dark place, it's like claustrophobic and dark and and uncomfortable. Um, and, and we were using that a lot. So it was, in a way, from a directorial point of view, it was like making a lot of different games or a lot of different direction choices um, and trying to keep them very separated within my head so it's unlike making it like an entire game where you just like make the whole thing in uh, it's, it's the same aesthetic world this was like yeah dark place is going to be this the washington state is going to be that you know the mind <laughs> the, the mind place is going to be this the writer's room is going to be this uh, the, the overlaps are going to be this kind of aesthetic so it's very segmented in a way but we tried to do it in a way that kind of blended in with each other so you mentioned the mix. I'm curious, you know, how far into, maybe I should ask how far from the end of development were you able to get your baseline mix dialed in and were you able to maintain it throughout production or throughout much of production or did you scramble to get the game mixed at the end? I see some grins because we all face this problem. <laughs> <laughs> um, the mix itself, taking this idea of like buckets of, things the mix is very much designed around these different aesthetic areas 
the game is not based on like a, a standard dynamic mix. Like a lot of games, like you know, guns are loud, ambience is quiet, footsteps somewhere in between. Yeah, dialogue is always king. It, it, we approached it in a different way, partly because of the genre, because it's a horror genre. We approached it in a way that that we were taking these kind of what I would call like a state-based mix, which means we were taking scene by scene and block by block. I'm going, okay, what does this scene need from the audio perspective to make it feel the way that we want it to feel? And then using actually WI's game states, um, we had a state manager um, that kind of controlled which state took precedence and priority over what when playing through the game, because we have like a lot of, lot of, lot of different game states. So when you're playing through the game, you're basically hitting different wise states effectively in different places, and we're re-jiggling the game depending on what we want the player to feel at that point. Like I was saying, it's not like a, a classic, like a dynamic mix. So we don't have this idea of like guns are always loud. And a lot of the times, and one of the mantras I was using with the team a lot is like quiet sounds are loud. And we were playing with perception of loudness. So like the dripping of the tap in the corner of the room would be like one of the louder things in the mix at that point, because we wanted to give this idea of, of like relative volume level you know, the, we wanted to make the game feel like you're in a really quiet environment. So we increase the quiet sounds in effect to make it feel in that way. And that was done through WI's game states. Did we mix the game at all? <laughs> it's a good question. question. <laughs> um, yes, we did mix the game. It was a bit of an organic process. And we, but we, towards the end, we did go through a, a, a pretty substantial mix phase like I was saying before, because it is so segmented that we could kind of like relatively pre-mix each section pretty well before that. And even when we were going into the mix stage, the game wasn't sounding too bad towards the end. There were a couple of issues that we had with mixing in general, one of which was rain, because rain upsets your noise floor basically quite badly. Um, and we had to get around that because the rain is needs to be kind of consistent between both worlds because it rains a lot and the, the level the relative level of that rain needs to be pretty much the same but going into the mix phase itself it was a lot of it was actually not leveling so much there were a couple of dbs here and there a lot of it was like eqing our assets and getting them to sit correctly in the world like EQ, making sure that the footsteps fit nicely with the reverb against the noise floor which sits against the rain and that was it was more of an eq balancing and also Things like making sure your dialogue ducking is working correctly and make sure it kind of like really scooping out the particularly the rain sounds in a nice way that it, it doesn't seem too obvious and trying to keep everything kind of fluid and nice. But we did a lot of like, well, not necessarily asset touching, but like rendering EQs in wise uh, towards the end of the project just to make sure that things fit and sat nicely together and kind of keeping this kind of atmosphere of the world together and not having any sounds that sounded out of place, that became really, really important. So talk to me a bit about the rain. The rain was very detailed. It's, it very much feels like a character in the world. But as you mentioned when talking about the mix just a moment ago, it was kind of a challenge from a mix perspective. So how did you juggle beds versus individual emitters and all the other things to make sure that things were audible when you needed to hear them, but you still got all that detail and immersion? I think the rain is one of the things we worked on probably the longest of any of the systems that we had. We went through many, many different iterations of how it should work. We tried placing rain spots and detecting like uh, materials around the player on, on raycasts, which didn't work for us at all. 
What else do we do? We, we just tried a lot of different things. We've tried ambisonics. We also tried uh, object detection too. So like automatically detecting every object and playing a certain material type of rain on that object with an ambient sped. But ironically, the best solution that we actually came up with was relatively simple. And that was doing what we call like hero markup. We would literally just go in and mark up certain objects in, with rain sounds. And then that was connected through, through like we had a rain intensity RTPC that was running off the game. Gradate the assets basing on the rain amount for a particular object. And then it was just down to really, really careful placement. There were a couple of other tricks that we did as well. We had like, when you go indoors, uh, we had like, a, like an indoor rain on roofs detection system, um, which worked really, really nicely. On the mix side of the rain though, and particularly on the, like, the object culling as well, that was quite challenging because I've never actually tried to mix a game with rain in it, which is dynamically driven because the rain in Nell Wake is actually a dynamic system. So you can be in the same scene in the same location. It can be raining or not raining. And then trying to get the dialogue to sit against your noise floor is, is difficult in that case. You know, if it's always raining, then you can, you know, you just level your rain against dialogue. But if you have to go from no rain to rain, and you're trying to create that feeling of intensity there with the rain, when people are speaking, when people aren't speaking, it's really difficult to just get it at about the right level when it's supposed to be an intense rainstorm and make the dialogue still sound quite natural and the footsteps sound natural when there was actually nothing in the scene that like that was just like basic noise floor. And it was basically done with a lot of very, very carefully cueing and then very careful dialogue ducking as well. So we had like EQ ducking on the dialogue and like quite slow and uh, like release values. We were cutting low and high frequencies uh, with the dialogue. When the rain was when the rain was present, we also going back to the idea of this state-based mix. When we go into combat, we actually have a, a state which is a combat state, and we were remixing the game or remixing the rain in combat, so we could actually allow the enemy sounds to kind of sh stick through. So it, the rain was actually ducked a fair amount in that in those situations as well. At this point, I could kind of ask a leading question and go into our state-based system and how the state-based system works. Go for it. We tried to think a lot about how states are used. There are some really important states that affect the entire mix globally. And then there are lots of other little mini-states, like whether the player's crouching or they've got low health or things like that. And when you've got lots of different states being set at the same time, you know, you can have one state that turns up the footsteps by 3 dB and you've got another state that turns down the footsteps by 3 dB and then you've got something else that, you know, is pushing it in lots of different ways. So we sort of came up with this idea of, well, we tried to do a, if this is happening and this is happening and this is happening, all three together, let's make this one state that's a accumulation of all of those things. That got really expensive and the game just stopped. It was trying to assess what was happening in the game every frame and comparing it to the previous frame and, you know, trying to come up with this fuzzy logic, you know, of what state to choose. And it just didn't work. <laughs> so we ended up with this idea of exclusive states. So there are some states that are the most important thing for the player at that time. If the player's being grappled by an enemy, you know, it doesn't really matter whether it's raining or not, 
you're being grappled and that is the most important thing. So let's completely change the mix. So all the other states that were driving the mix, they go away and there's this one state that is, you know, you're being grappled or you're in a cinematic. That made it really easy to focus in on the parameters that were going into WISE that changed the mix. We could just focus on the one state that was the most important and mix around that. And that was nice. And, you know, we had a, a nice debug tool. You could see which states were being set. We had things called tracked game states, which weren't set in WISE, but we could see whether these things were happening in the game at that time. And you could notice patterns of, you know, these multiple things happening. And then you're like, oh, yeah, these things. So let's make something when these, these three things are happening or, you know, what is the game doing when these certain things are happening? And then when that state ends, we, we put it back to how it was. You know, we put it back to the procedurally driven mixed state. So I hope you found it useful when you were, you were mixing with it. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. Yeah, um, when it comes to the rain spots, so we were when we're putting all the rain and we're dropping it all in on all these objects and we're making it sound, it's all sounding brilliant and we, we're realising that they're like suddenly playing it back on console, that it would just basically fall over. Go into a level, the level would stream in, all these objects would suddenly like activate at the same time with all these rain spots. So it would have like 350, 400 sounds suddenly starting to play back all at the same time. And um, yeah, it would, it would just kill wise, basically. Would, the game would fall over and just we couldn't cope with it. So we had to devise pretty quickly a system that prioritized which spot was being played back when. On the code side, we were just using a culling volume around uh, around the player. So we would give it like we would only activate if it was in with about it's about 11, 11 meters of the player. Even that was is pretty hard on on the CPU though to actually render all those objects all at the same time. Uh, we would spend a long time trying to work out what that distance should be. I think I think it was around 11 meters in the end, but it wasn't. Uh, at one point, it was really really not very pretty on the. <laughs> On the, uh, on the optimization side. Yeah, uh, I think it's a, it, weirdly, as we're becoming the, the next generation consoles, the games are getting much more detailed. This is becoming more and more of an issue is, is that the amount of voices that we're actually needing to play to create these worlds and these ambiences and this, the feeling of, you know, the feeling of this world is becoming, it's just getting higher and higher and higher and higher. Just the amount of detail in there is, is really quite phenomenal. Yeah, the consoles nowadays can play back an incredible amount from when I started in the industry, what, 18 years ago on Xbox 360. But we're always pushing against that. How much CPU do you have? How much memory can we actually run? And we didn't know how much resources we had until the game properly started coming together at the end of development because everything gets thrown in and suddenly it becomes a game that works together and you can experience all of it all at the same time. And then you're like, oh... (laughs) How do we make this work? <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you on the challenge of voices. I, too, started like right at the end of the PS2, beginning of PS3, 360 cycle. And it's weird that we have the ability to play so many voices and have so much detail. But that's also, at times, like the enemy of the mix. It's nice that it's more of a creative choice now. And you have to make yeah. the creative choice. Yeah, that's true. I think there are improvements there to be had on, on both the middleware side and, and on the code side across not just Remedy, but just in general. 
we have the teams and the power to do this now, but we're still pushing pushing against that limit, which is kind of ironic considering how much things have improved over the last like 15 years. You mentioned trying Ambisonics in the context of Rain. Um, did you use Ambisonics at all? Did you use Atmos objects in this? And if so, did you what things worked well with those? What didn't? We were assessing for probably 18 months <laughs> from sort of start to finish what our 3D audio would would be. You know, and there are there are lots of buzzwords. <laughs> you know, everyone interprets it in a slightly different way. You know, 3D audio, the term 3D audio is being thrown at us now as a very sort of specific thing, but games have kind of always been 3D audio. You might have only heard them in stereo, but there were there were objects being panned around you in all directions. So that's that's 3D. We tried a lot of things. We tried Atmos objects. The number of Atmos objects that you can have at any one time is a major limiting factor. But we don't need, or we didn't need, super, super accurate positioning. We're not trying to identify the direction of a sniper two miles away. One of the major design decisions we made was we didn't want to have really accurate positioning in the game because that vagueness of, you know, the vagueness of horror, if you like, we were trying to kind of like make things a little bit obscure. So it, it didn't become an issue that we, you know, we like you were saying, that sniper on the hill over there, which, the, which you need to know about, it, it just wasn't a factor for us at all. And the, but it was very much like a, a decision that we made pretty early on in the in the development cycle that we wanted to keep things kind of vague but we needed to work out what that practically meant in terms of how we set up wise and we eventually decided to run the entire mix at all times in 714 so the sort of atmos bed speaker configuration and so even if you're listening on stereo headphones, the entire game is mixing at 714. And right at the end point, does it fold down to stereo? If we knew the game was always at some point running in 714, we can have 714 as our reference mix. That, you know, that's our configuration. And as long as it was predictable how it folded down to stereo or 5.1 or 7.1, you know, we could support those quite simply, actually. But it did mean, you know, we couldn't support audio objects at the same time. So we support Atmos, we have Dolby Atmos for headphones and Atmos, you know, discrete, but they're not Atmos audio objects. It's using the 714 bed. And that was enough for us. I still don't think we got the configuration exactly right. And we're still, we're still trying to work out what the configuration is. The way the speakers are panned around you and how a mono signal gets mixed between those speakers, you know, there was some very interesting <laughs> results we found if you had the wrong speaker configuration at any point in the signal path. But the idea to upmix any asset straight into 714 and then it existed in 714 right down to the end point worked really well for us. Yeah. No, I agree. But there were some parameters that we had to spread. Spread does funny, funny things <laughs> to, <laughs> to sounds as they pan around you. And especially when you're going from 
you know, we were having to compare switch between 714 and stereo and constantly, you know, comparing how something sounds. And if spread's having a massive effect on how it, you know, spreads around the speakers and spread changes at distance. <laughs> we found at one point it got, the mix got really bad. And when we switched between different endpoints, 714 to stereo, some things were going up by 5 dB and other things were going down by 3 dB. There was no reference level <laughs> anywhere and there was no way of really trying to mitigate those. So we sort of put some parameters. You couldn't go around these parameters. We worked really hard on the channel configurations and what spreads we could use. Least worst configuration, I think. Those limitations actually work really well for Alan Wake too. Just to add to that, the one of the the seven one four configuration worked well for us because we were we were you know PS five Xbox PC and we wanted to support Atmos you know five one seven one three D audio on PS five. This was a good coverall basically that yeah. we can kind of support everything without having to make specific mixes for specific consoles. And we wanted the mix to sound good for everyone, or as good as we could make it for everyone. So this, is a, this was a pretty good solution, I think, for us. Yeah. And I think we did want to, similar to the voice count limitations, you know, we, we sort of imposed limitations on ourselves so that we could make creative decisions within that. You have to make the effort to impose those limitations on you because the middleware and the engines and the hardware tell you you can do whatever you want, but you yeah. shouldn't. Yeah. And to just answer your question about ambisonics, very little of the content of the game is in ambisonics. There are creative reasons why we did that. The sound of the ambisonic itself didn't really fit the style of the game we were making, because we were very much like a specific kind of asset game, if that makes sense to you. Like every asset is important and everything needs to sound in place and and the way it needs to sound and ambisonic kind of it kind of smeared that too much for us we want i was looking for like that that, that pure pure sound for this game that, that, that recorded asset sound and especially in washington state some of the really important especially exterior sounds were the rain trees running water wind all classes of sound that are really really sensitive to any artifacts. The less you do to sounds like that, the more natural they're going to sound. So I'm curious about your relationship with the direction above you. Were you working with a single creative director or multiple? Um, how often were you listening to the game with them? What was that working relationship like? The, the creative director of the project is obviously Sam. He's like the face of, of the project as well. And he, he's, he's definitely the driving force behind pretty much the entire game idea and the vision and the, and the atmosphere of this is, is, is from Sam's mind. He's also an incredibly busy person, <laughs> coincidentally, because he, he, does, he does so much and he's so involved with everything from the actors to acting it in himself and all the marketing and everything. So he's, he's really busy, but he's, he's very, very involved with us or as much as he can be. So Sam is a driving vision behind the, behind the project, but we also have two other directors in the core loop, which is uh, our game director and an art director, all of which who I work with kind of like to, to make the vision of the game together. The way that we work together 
we were working a lot on the narrative content. This is a narrative game. The audio vision was set by myself, and then I run that by the, the game director and, and the creative director, Sam and Kyle, uh, very early on in the project. And then from there on in, it's kind of like a collaboration between myself, the game director, and the, the creative director. Because it's such a narrative-driven game, the details of the audio design were coming mainly through the cinematics because that's where I was getting a lot of the narrative information, like what is happening in the story, what are the main beats here, and how are we kind of like classifying the uh, sonic direction of the game, which is has to be in line with narrative direction, obviously, like how the music should flow, how the music should sound, what kind of timbre and instruments to be using. Um, so that was very much driven through the cinematics. And we were, we were sitting in with Sam, mainly going through like all the cinematic mixes, you know, talking about how the dialogue processing should work in there, what, what words should you hear, what words you shouldn't hear. And from there, I was getting a very good idea about his idea of the game. And I could use that and translate that to the sound designers for the game parts as well, for the actual gameplay as well. So that's pretty much how the direction works. And then with our game director, we're talking a lot more, less about the sonic identity of the game and, and the, the audio direction, but more about like, what's the purpose of this sound within this context, like with the enemies or with the barks. It's like, is it giving the player enough information? The arc director I also worked with quite heavily as well. Um, but again, it's, it's more on the aesthetic. Are we actually combined? Holistically, is this working together? Is a sonic vision and the art vision actually working together, particularly on things like the dark presence or the, the light shifter moments or how the torch works and it burns off the enemy. It, uh, it, it, it very much relies on the visions, like the visuals to be there, to have the, the audio to work with it. I think we were all playing the game individually and then going off to the kitchen and talking about it basically and talking about ideas about how it actually works. So there was a lot of communication in there as well. So I'm curious on a project of this scope, you know, how many people did you have on the team, internal and external? How did you keep track of all the work? How did you keep track of dependencies? You know, we mentioned earlier the amount of live action and cinematic content, which just seems like additional wrinkles in the project in terms of managing. It's hard enough to manage a AAA game without all of that additional stuff. So how did you wrangle all of this stuff and make sure everything got done? So going back to the team size first, internally we were a team of about seven people. That's sound designers and technical sound designers. And then we had, well, me and Richard, um, then our composer and a bunch of external partners that we worked with together very closely. So at the peak of the project, we were 25 people in total um, that were all working on different tracks. We really used classic production systems to track the workload that was helping us to keep track of what needed to be done. And then I think it was a bit up to me and Richard to make sure that the team focuses on the right things at the right time. So Richard was kind of setting the priorities on we're going to focus on those moments in, in the game the most and make them stand out because at the end of the day, there is so much content in the game that we just had to decide, like, what do we want to polish the most to make it really shine? Other than that, we were talking a lot just with other development managers, with other leads, with just the other game teams about 
what they wanted to do and when they were going to deliver it to us so that we can jump on it and, and do our pass. And Richard mentioned earlier already that we basically split up the team into different tracks. So we had like a little sub-team taking care of all the Washington State stuff and another one taking care of the dark place. And then we had a more systemic team um, taking care of like close Foley and the weapons and just make all the combat or systemic things work. We had someone focus on enemies and bosses. So in that sense, um, our sound designers were self-organizing, like they were trying to get the information that they needed from other teams themselves. And they were basically coming back to Richard and I if, if something needed to be moved quickly or if they really needed a, like a decision from, let's say, a director about a certain aesthetic or where we wanted to go with something visually, because often we needed to understand what things would look like before we could decide what do we want to do with it. There was a lot to, to keep track of, and you mentioned live action. And I think Richard explained a little bit earlier, the approach was that some of the live action scenes needed to sound very close to what we had in-game. Um, and that was mostly done by the same people that did the sound design for our in-game scenes to just make sure that it's consistent and they already kind of knew what they were doing. Um, they were also sitting in the reviews that, that Richard mentioned when Sam and our composer would just look at the cinematics to, to understand what where Sam wanted to go. And then we had a bunch of live action that was done by a different partner um, and that didn't need the exact nailing down the tone. We just gave them the specs that we needed to have. Yeah, the live action was kind of a separate track. We jumped on it pretty late once we had the material in, but I think we managed to, to pull it off quite well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, the whole game came together really, really well. It sounds amazing. We have to wrap up because we're a little short on time, but thank you all very much for your time today. I wish I could keep you for another hour or two. I definitely have more questions. I highly recommend you check it out. It's one of the best sounding games I've heard this year, and I'm hopeful that there are awards in your future. I certainly think they're deserved. Thank you all again for your time today. Hope to see you around, and best of luck with everything in the future. Thanks, Mark. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. you, too. Okay, big thanks to Mark Kilborn for hosting that interview. As someone that does not work in game audio, these are the most fascinating talks. It's great to hear how that part of the sound community is thriving and kicking ass. Remember Tonebender Sound Design Meetup coming soon in LA. It's February 29th at 7 p.m. We'll be hanging out on the covered patio at the Thirsty Merchant in Studio City. Full details can be found at tonebenderspodcast.com. This episode was volunteer edited and mixed by Rob Knight. Rob is a composer and audio geek who has composed for TV and short films and has a long history working in audio, including dialogue editing, dubbing, mixing, and game localization. Rob is always open to new projects, so go by and say hello at soniclab.co.uk. That's Sonic with a K. Stay tuned for the next while as we have some heavy hitters coming in the next few weeks. These are talks you won't want to miss. So keep an ear on the Tonebenders feed. My name is Tim Muirhead, and on behalf of today's host, Mark Kilborn, thanks for listening to Tonebenders. Tonebenders is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. 
Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Are you looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? Tonebenders is part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.